0: Hello humans. I hope you're enjoying your doomed mortal existence <laughs> during your short time here on the planet Earth. If you haven't gathered by the name of this episode, it's about death and what that means for life, how to live with the, the knowledge and, you know face the reality that this is temporary. With that being said, let's have a moment of silence for the artists who will never see their artwork, for the writers who will never see their writing, for the activists who will never get to do their activism. For all the people who have something in their heart that they deeply want to do, and for whatever reason will not get a chance to do them, let's have a moment of silence for those people. You know, death is scary, but it's not the tragedy. The tragedy is getting to your death without really taking advantage of this life. Someone's dream will die today. Many of them. It will not be mine. and I hope it is not yours. With that being said, I do want to take a firmer stance in asking you to participate in this program. Um, my therapist blew my mind by pointing out that me not taking the finances of this project seriously is doing a really piss-poor job of self-care. And it wasn't just diet and exercise. It kind of blew my mind because I've never thought of it that way. So here we go. This isn't to shame you or to make you feel bad, or to guilt you into doing anything you don't want to do. But if you're a regular listener and you like this program, if you get value out of this program, you need to put value back in if you can. I need you guys to do better. Right now, less than 1% of our regular listeners help fund this program. And we can do better than that. I, I believe we can do way better than that. Here's the reality of the situation. We have no real funding and there's no guarantee this program will make it. None of our mommies or daddies are going to save us if this doesn't work. The company has taken on tens of thousands of dollars of debt to make this possible. And I want this project to succeed. That's I believe in it. And if you believe in it, if you look forward to it or you look forward to seeing what it could become one day, you got to support us financially if you can. I need you to. And so there's no excuse. There's no shame in chipping in a buck if that's all you can afford. That's $12 a year if you chip in a buck a month. The link is in the show notes. The website is patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash hellohuman. It's getting getting scary. And there's there's things that are worthwhile. The microphone went down during the interview first time around. I couldn't afford a, a good one to replace it, and so the quality is is different in this in this interview. Now we don't have the money to transcribe the episode, so people who can't hear can at least read it. These are all things that I would love to do if we had the capital to do it. And so, with that being said, thank you to the those of you who are going to hear me and take it to heart and actually participate. With that being said, here is the episode. Hello, humans. Welcome to another episode of the How To Human podcast. My name is Sam Lamont, and today's episode is all about death. I remember starting really young, like nine years old. I started to get worried about what dying meant and how maybe this was all temporary. I mean, I didn't have questions. I was deeply, deeply, troubled and concerned, it kept me up at night. I was horrified because losing your loved ones is hard enough, but also losing yourself, like everything. How do you even wrap your mind around that? And let's be honest, this is what attracted me to religion is they had the answer, they had the afterlife, but there were still things I couldn't shake. Like the idea of if the afterlife isn't real, then this is all temporary, like all of it. And I'd sit there and just try to picture it, try to imagine what that was like. And it started with silence. And then it always starts the same way. Okay. So you die, you lose your body. So then what? I always kind of pictured this ethereal thing floating through the cosmos almost, but that wasn't quite right because we're talking about death. And that's what? That's just blackness, just nothing, like actual nothing, no memories, no loved ones, no thoughts, no consciousness, no feelings, no what, just nothing? Just like actual nothingness, like my life just has never even happened because I can't remember that it happened and it's just over and gone forever. It's fucking permanent. I'm really gonna die. I'm really gonna die, and you're really gonna die, and my mom is really gonna die, and even my son is really gonna die. Everyone you know, everyone who's ever existed, had to die. That's just part of this thing called life. And it's not ideal, but it is the scarcity that makes it valuable. I mean, that's what makes time valuable, is that it's finite. I woke up today and started to treat it like it was just any other day, but it's not. Today is day 10,660 of 28,000. The average lifespan for a man is 28,000 days. I've never written it out like that. But luckily, I have a guest who's here to teach us about living through his experience with death. His name is Frank Ostaseski. He started the Zen Hospice Project and has personally been with thousands of people as they pass. And he wrote a book on it called The Five Invitations, which is about what he's learned in the process. And I feel really lucky that I got to have him on the program and pick his brain about really living.
1: Um, Does you like this angle, or do you want it more direct in front of me?
0: Yeah, try moving it a little bit. Okay. Like that. Too straight on? No, I think that works great. Okay, good. So we'll turn that. Turn that and we're going, okay. I can take these off now. Hey, Frank.
1: Hi Sam. Nice to be with you.
0: This can be as uh, I like to start every conversation this way. I should slow down. Hold on a second. My heart's still going a little bit. Hey Frank. Hi Sam. Thank you for for having us in your home. And um, to paint a picture to everyone, we're on a houseboat in Sausalito, California there's seaplanes that go overhead and other things that happen on unpredictable water. <laughs> so, uh, and he said, here we are in our floating world. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to move this just a tiny bit. Perfect. All right. Frank, I like to start each program this way and this can be as big or as small of a question as you want it to be. But
1: who are you? <laughs> Good question, Sam. <laughs> You know, I think I'm just an ordinary guy, you know, who tried, has tried the best he could to um, use the pain of my life as a way to build an empathetic bridge to other people's pain. Um, I'm somebody who's not so afraid to be with suffering, who's doing his very best to wake up in this life, you know. The roles I play are something else. They're not exactly who I am. but. I feel very fortunate to do what I do in the world, which is basically to be with people at really vulnerable times in their life when people are generally pretty honest. And um, it tends to be around times of their own dying or maybe the loss of someone that they love or people who are just working with their own difficulties of being a human being.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, those are all the things I do and, and, uh, but who I am is pretty ordinary. <laughs>
0: I love that. Yeah. I gotta be careful around you Buddhists. You guys are very, uh, you have to be more specific, I suppose. So, so just to help give listeners an idea of what you've done with your life, kind of what's brought you to now in terms of your body of knowledge and what are the specific projects that you've worked on and kind of, career is the wrong word, but as you would say, roles you've had to, to bring you to here. I guess, tell us a little bit about your life.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm known for is being the co-founder of something called the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And um, we started it back in the 80s as a response to um, people who were living on the streets, dying on the streets people who had little or no family support. And um, we didn't know exactly what to do. We just thought something should be done. So it was a kind of fusion of spiritual insight and practical social action. We trained Zen students, uh, initially, to accompany people um, at the end of their lives. So I did that for about 20 years, and then I, um, uh, something shifted in me. I got, my kids grew up, Uh, my caregiver energy had shifted somehow, and more mentoring and teaching energy came forward. So I started something else called the META Institute. And the META Institute's a way of taking what we learned at the Zen Hospice Project and sharing it with a much larger audience of people, mostly clinicians, caregivers, here in the country and all around the world. Um, I wanted a play group when we started the META Institute, so I got together uh, Ram Das and myself, Norman Fisher, Rachel Naomi Remen, Angela Sarian, Charlie Garfield, who started the Shanti Projects, uh, Angie Stevens, who with Trey Wilbur started the first peer-to-peer cancer support communities in, in America. Wonderful teachers, great friends, and um, it was a kind of our legacy project uh, to share with a larger audience of people what dying folks had taught us.
0: Hospice, for any young listener that hasn't encountered the the meaning of it yet is when you have decided to stop
1: care, right? I think actually it's, you you stop certain kinds of curative treatments. So it's generally suited for people in the final six months of life. Uh, People who have predictable illnesses, cancers, heart disease, other kinds of predictable illnesses. And they forego oftentimes, um, curative therapies for what are called palliative therapies or comfort care. Um, And in some cases, people use that time also to turn toward this dying experience to see what it has to teach.
0: So, I mean, hospice work involves somebody who is seeing somebody through death, right? It's uh, making sure they're not alone and have somebody to confide in and kind of uh, have the cleanest, most peaceful possible passing, I guess.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I mean, all of those things. And also, you know, it's pragmatic, you know, it's about making sure people's pain is controlled well and that their symptoms are well managed and that um, they have the support they need to go through this dying process the way they need to go through it. There's a whole lot of talk out there these days about good death, you know, and being death positive and these kinds of things. And I'm a little allergic to these ideas. Um, I think people need to die the way they need to die. And my task is to find that out and see, do my best to uh, companion them in, through that process. Yeah.
0: So you're, you have a, an aversion to the idea of a good death.
1: No, I don't have an aversion to the idea of a good death. I have the aversion to the idea of imposing a good death on people. You know, death is already hard enough. It's tough. You know, maybe the toughest work we'll ever do in our lives. And I don't think we need people around us with an agenda about how we should go through it. I think what we need to do is create really great conditions in which people can die, and die the way they need to die. You know, we put all the emphasis on the individual going through the process. Were they awake for the dying process? Were they conscious for their dying process? You know, Did they say their goodbyes properly? Did they come to a place of acceptance that suits our version of that? Um, I think death can be messy, and it can be painful. And it can be scary. But it can also be transformative. It can also be the greatest adventure of a lifetime. But it's not up, from, it's not up to me to decide that for somebody else. You know, it's up to them. So what I want to do is create a holding environment, a really kind set of conditions that enable that person to go through the experience however they need to go through it. And that might be raging and you know dragging their heels and leaving skid marks, or it might be blossoming and opening to a kindness that they've never known in their lives before.
0: That's funny. I allow that, I give that allowance to addicts who are killing themselves because a lot of people ask me, because uh, I'm I'm pretty vocal about my recovery. Mm-hmm. A lot of people ask me, they say, my brother is literally going to die, like soon. What do I do? <laughs> I, I mostly just say, well, think about the, little boy he once was. Mm. And in the times that he gave you that were amazing because mm. this isn't a fairy tale. He could very possibly die an addict. And so I've created that space for addicts to not necessarily go out well, because that's quite often what addicts in addiction do. And it doesn't mean that their life was a waste, even though that the end was bad. Mm-hmm. You know, oft, often they were great children and great family members at some point, at least the the ones who have family that call me mm-hmm. or reach out to me on email, they're hanging on to that amazing person that they once were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when you talk about people at the end of their natural life, let's use uh, kind of a an old age disease like you know, cancer is nowadays, like when you start getting old, you start getting these diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a huge natural desire for me to want to imagine them finding quote unquote peace.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it happens, Sam. And, 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 you know, as I said, it can, dying can come in all kinds of ways. And what I saw regularly, and I saw this with folks living off the st- on the streets, not necessarily folks who had, you know, deep inner lives and access to meditation retreats, regular folks whose diapers I was changing on park benches behind City Hall, you know. I saw those folks regularly come around to something in the final weeks of life, days of life, sometimes moments of life where they came to some opening, some kind of transformation where they found themselves... Knowing mm, opening to something larger than themselves that also included themselves now we might say too late, that's too late, final minutes of life and and I would tend to agree, but here's the thing: if that possibility for change is available then, well, it's available to us now, and we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to make that kind of opening. so for me, that's really the work is to figure out what do dying folks have to teach us about living a life that's you know, full of meaning and purpose and value. Um, If these things are what's important to us at the end of our life, well, then they're important to us now. And I don't want to wait until then. In fact, to wait until the time of our dying and to imagine that we will have the mental clarity, the emotional stability, the physical strength to do the work of a lifetime is a kind of absurd gamble. You know, I I think we need to do it now.
0: Yeah. I was a kid who was terrified of death. From a young age, I was like the weird esoteric child really asking hard questions to the point where I could probably get an atheist to tell me that there was an afterlife. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was that annoying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just was very, the idea of not having consciousness anymore, yeah. having this life, like it's so against the kind of the, the day-to-day narrative we're, we're given about life.
1: Yeah. Is that what scared you, the idea of no consciousness? Yeah, I'm, I'm very,
0: even though I have kind of a funky mind that is abusive to myself at times and uh, other times really just doesn't want to be here on earth, you know, I have mm. pretty severe mental illness and I consider it mostly well-managed, but I, I am very attached to it as mm. well. <laughs> You know, for all the pain uh, that comes with life, I'm very attached to it at the end of the, you know, I've had a rough couple days and it's it's pretty natural for me after a really, really good stretch to have kind of like a, a pretty low few days. And I think my healing comes from what I do and how I treat myself during those days rather than trying to fight them. But yeah, if I really start to think about it, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so terrifying collectively that we've gotten really comfortable at, at living as if we're not. Because let me tell you, the past two weeks, although there are some very wonderful moments are not being lived like a man who is dying actively. Cause that's what we are essentially, you know, there's, there's a really finite amount of time.
1: Yeah. I'm a little, suspicious of people who say they're not afraid of dying. Um, I am, and I've been doing this for a long time. I think there's a part of me, you know, my little personality is always gonna be scared. You know, it knows in a way it's a cheap imitation of something more fundamental, more essential, that that we forget about when we grow into our individuality, into our personas. And, you know, my personality, like yours and like everybody else's, is a creation. It's made up. We imitated what we saw, our parents, some authority. And we tried to look like them or rebel against them. Either way, it doesn't matter. We created a self-image. So good image, bad image, it doesn't matter. It's still an image, right? And some part of us knows that. I think some part of us knows that deep down that it's not real. And it's always afraid of being found out. And so I think it's not substantial. And that's why it's always scared. <laughs> so we have to find something else, in addition to that, that's reliable, that's not so scared. Like when you're scared, do you know you're scared? Yes. <laughs> Great. How do How do you know?
0: Uh, a sense of impending doom and fear in <laughs> my stomach. <laughs> okay, it's a it's a very visceral feeling. It's not an intellectual feeling. It's it is. You know how they how they've always said, follow your gut. Yeah. It the, these are thoughts from within the stomach. All
1: know, right. So it, it's churning and churning and yeah. you know, doing its thing in your gut, right? Okay, beautiful. Other things happen to your body physically?
0: Let me think. I've you know, it's a place I can go that I chose or not to. Really peeling back the layers until I can somewhat try to imagine no longer existing.
1: Well, let's just see how it does exist. How so? How does fear exist? Like, how do we know it's fear? Like for me, my mouth gets dry and I get cotton mouth, you know, and maybe I tremble a little bit, you know? And I see my mind racing forward into strategies and planning and all of that. You know, what, what, what happens in your mind when you get scared?
0: Normally things get faster before they get slower. Uh-huh. So like my mind starts to race and race about, it's almost like when you lose a relationship, it's not just losing one person, it's losing every single thing that person is also attached to. Yeah. So that's the thought process is, "Oh my gosh, what are the holidays going to look like now?" Right. "Oh man, what's that going to look like now?" Right. "What's going to happen there?" "Oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to see my son or you know, all these various connections to my life start getting played out over and over until I guess my imagination can't come up with anything and then I'm just
1: Sad, I get sad, a little bit sad, yeah, yeah, that often, so the fear shifts into this yeah. sadness. But prior to that, there's all this what ifing and you know, future tripping about what might or might not happen, right? So you're doing really well at describing what the experience of fear is like for for most of us. The part of you that knows you're afraid is not afraid. And it's not just some Buddhist workaround. You know, the part of you that knows that you're afraid, that's aware that your stomach is churning, that your mind is racing, that's not afraid. Convince me. <laughs> okay? Well, you just did it. You just tracked your experience. And there was a part of you that was able to sense into that and, and, and see it, right? And name it really clearly. Now then, Now we have a choice. Now I'm aware of this other part of me. And I can function from that or I can function from the fear. Sometimes I don't feel like I have much of a choice, but I definitely don't have a choice if I'm not willing to be aware of what the fear looks and smells and tastes like. So the more familiar I am with the fear, the less it has me in a stranglehold. The more I have some relationship to it as opposed to just being a reaction. So that part of you that can know you're afraid is not afraid. and. That gives us choice. (laughs) Then you can watch it, like you just did, shift into something else, shift into sadness, you know? And we watch the whole parade of our emotional life and our mental states coming and going all the time. And we get to be in relationship to them, as opposed to just being swept away by them. So for me, it's not teacherly about that. It's like really practical. Like when I know that I can be aware of my fear, I've got, I'm not a victim to it. And I don't want to be a victim to my life. I want to be as free as possible. It has nothing to do with Buddhism or even spirituality. It's very pragmatic for me. You know, I'm a kind of spiritual pragmatist. I want my life to be as happy as possible. Yeah.
0: Me too. I'm very. I think we were talking a little bit about this yesterday when one of the microphones broke, which is I am not attached to much but results, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like I told you, like I don't conceptually even pretend to know if there's a higher power or not. Mm -hmm. Intellectually, I feel like, well, of course we're worm chow. I get very dark about it, but I wake up and I, pray to something every day Mm -hmm. and I don't know what it is. I just know that when I pray, I feel better. And so I do it. And I don't ask too many questions about it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't have, it's almost like I, I operate from a different, the intellectual in me that wants to know everything and the absolute truth has kind of cleared a path for the spiritual side of me to say, can you argue with the result. Just let me do this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the clear example of that for me is love. I can't explain it. You know, I mean, I can explain what it feels like, but I can't really explain how it is that I love, you know, how do I, how do I love my granddaughter who's before she's born? <laughs> how does that happen? It's mysterious to me, completely mysterious. And yet it's, it's real. It's as real as you and I sitting here. So, uh, I'm, I want, I'm okay with the fact that there's mystery in my life, things that I can't explain. I really can't explain what happens to us after we die. I don't know. My father used to say, it can't be too bad. You know, people haven't come back to complain, but (laughs) I'm not sure, you know, I mean, Buddhism would say they come back all the time, but, um, what I do see is that regularly being with people who are dying shows me a lot about how to live my life. It shows me what really matters in the end. You know, there's not much room for bullshit when people are dying. And so people get really honest, very real. It's not that they suddenly become wise. It's that the senses are off. And I like being around that. I really like being around that. It feels real. It
0: makes me think of, uh, kind of a a concept of change that jack cornfield really challenged me to my core because i love personal growth and development and the way he was kind of describing it to me was it was like you're not a tree trying to grab trying to grow a new branch you're like a tree that's trying to you know clean up all the crap outside outside the tree you know that you've put on there. So there's a, a tree fort that's not necessary and he didn't use these images, but, Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, graffiti that needs to get cleaned off. And, but it's really more returning to what already is there rather than growing into something completely different. And so with death, there must be stages. And I don't know at what point on average you come in, but there is a point to where their shtick, their mask, their public personality and persona starts to, you know, if it requires any extra energy, probably starts fading away because they're returning to what's most important. And it probably, can you describe kind of common transition from Mm. denial to acceptance and kind of what the mind goes through and what changes happen?
1: Yeah, and and it's not a linear path, obviously. You know, it's more like a spiral. People come through it and states of mind sort of explode into awareness and then fade again, you know? Like, gen- like regular grief where you feel okay, then feel terrible, yeah. then feel okay. Exactly. Exactly. Like, like the loss of a relationship, you know, you know, it's pretty common that people will sort of close down their most, their circles around them, you know, first, the most widest circles, their acquaintances and community or their work colleagues, they tend to draw in as as people are dying, they tend to draw in. And then sometimes there's a closing down of closer circles, you know, friends maybe who have been around, until we come down to who's really important to us and who's around us that really matters. Sometimes it's family, but not always. Sometimes it's close friends. Sometimes it's, you know, the home health aide that's been, you know, changing your diapers. Basically, you close, you, you the circles get smaller, until you come down to being with people who you really trust,
0: is that the common denominator? You That's what I see. Trust. Trust.
1: You know, and the people who seem to do have an easier time with their dying have some kind of basic trust. You know, um, that maybe they've had their whole life. You know, they trust that the sun's going to come up in the morning. They trust that if they close their eyes, their eyes will open again. You know, this kind of trust that we take for granted sometimes. That if we've had it, we don't really understand why other people don't have it. But if it's been messed with in our life and we've lost contact with it, it's hard for us. So I think there's that that experience of coming down to some sense of trust. There's three big fears that I see that people have. The first is that this is going to hurt. And so we can do something about that. We can manage most people's pain, at least 90% of it. The second fear is that I'm going to be emotionally abandoned because there's no future in a relationship with me. And so people are going to leave me, leave me. And we can do something about that. We can say, I'm here, you know, I'll be a companion to you. And the third is more difficult. The third is, uh, who am I going to be when I'm not all of these roles and identities that I've been propping up all along? The athlete, the... Yeah, the mother, the father, the athlete, the podcaster, the Buddhist teacher. You know, all those ways we have of describing ourselves. They're all going to go. And then who are we? Then we get down to something much more fundamental and essential. And um, I think when people come down to that and they kind of rest back into that a little bit, um, there's some kind of relaxation that happens to them. Um, you know, it's like, it's like with addiction, right? You get Everything gets stripped away. You come down to this bare me. Uh, and what's that like? when you come down to bear me, I mean, at first it feels terrifying. I, you know, but then something else starts to emerge. You realize, oh, I don't have to be some way for anybody else anymore. And there's a kind of freedom in that. That's how I felt at certain points during this, uh,
0: heartbreak process. Yeah. yeah it's, you know, it was, it was almost like, you know, I did a little drawing that was kind of like a, you know, it's just a little bit, playing fun and trying to get a rise out of people, but it was a cash register and it said amount due and it said, I don't owe you shit. And I was just realizing like there's only, you know, besides my son and my family, of course, which are obviously I owe them everything, but it's kind of like, I don't owe anyone anything anymore. And it was kind of like a a sense of freedom. Yeah. Not that I was in debt, you know, Mm -hmm. before, but just that, what do I do now with this blank slate? Because immediately you want to, Find things to jump into. I did. Mm-hmm. You know, there I could feel this pull towards like, yeah, let's let's load up some responsibilities and you know, uh things that you will owe allegiance to. Cause the void was very strange, but to experience that for moments. I was going, Wow, okay. What do I owe myself at this point? Mm-hmm.
1: There's this phenomenon that happens with people who have cancer that a friend of mine shared with me. She calls it a secret gratitude. And basically it is that once people get through the initial shock of the diagnosis, and there's this feeling that f- folks with cancer often talk to each other about but don't talk to others about. And it's like a secret gratitude. Like I can say no now. I don't have to go to that really boring dinner party on Saturday night. You know, I can say no. And so there's this kind of freedom and uh, clarity that emerges that we could be having all our life, but we finally discover it in this moment when we're facing life-threatening illness. I mean, do we have to die before we can rest in peace? It's a great question.
0: It's a great line.
1: I mean, this thing that you were just mentioning about like loss, you know, this is, we're really confused about that in this country. You know, our, our mother dies and we go to a party and nobody mentions it because we don't want to upset you. We don't want to, you know, shake you up too much. And so we leave the person who's in loss in isolation, in aloneness. Small talk. Yeah. Trapped in small talk. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of coming up to them and saying, wow, I heard your mom died. I I can't imagine what that's like. You know, what's it like for you? You know, because who the hell wants to talk about baseball when your mother's died? And they're the brave souls
0: who want to talk to you about it, but they, it's so uncomfortable that they also really want you to be fixed. They really, you know, there are people that'll talk about it, but when they do, one of the most uncomfortable things is just to hear somebody not offer a solution, right? Cause that's, we're like programmed to solve problems. And so
1: in this culture, we are so impatient with people's emotional processes, but especially with the experience of grief because it scares us. You know, there was a woman I worked with and her husband's name was Romeo (laughs) and he died quite suddenly. They they were a young couple, he got cancer, and three months later he was dead. And she went to work at a big company, and she was just crying at her desk. This was a few days after the funeral. And no one knew what to do with her, so they sent her to the human resources person. And the human resources person said, you know, maybe you should see a therapist. Now, in the culture this young woman was coming from, that meant she was crazy. And she she got really scared. And so she went home, she pulled all the curtains and she didn't come out of her house for six months. Finally, she emerged out of it and her friends kept telling her, you should get a dog, you know, you should really get a dog. And, you know, the love of her life has just died. She feels like she just lost her right arm and people are telling her to get a dog. So it's a really common thing that when we have a loss in our life, whether it's a loss through death or the loss of a relationship, that people are sensitive to it in the first, Several weeks, maybe, but then they get impatient and they want us to move on.
0: There is an appropriate grieving time limit, right, in our society. Where it's like, Yeah, who says this? Yeah, you know, three years later, if you still have some deep sadness, like people are kind of, (laughs) it's not, you know, it's not cute anymore.
1: Yeah, we try to manage other people's grief in a way. And we set timelines on it, and we have models and how they should move through it. And I'm suspicious of these models. I mean, yeah, okay, there's a pathway through grief, and and it's useful to know something of the territory of grief of loss. But each of us are going to go through it in a different way. And and bereavement groups will work really well for some person. Some kind of support group will be great for somebody. You know, but for other people, they're going to need to scream and yell and stomp and and you know break something. I remember working with a group of teenagers that had AIDS. And one of the things that we did was we got, we were talking about it and it wasn't going anywhere. So I brought them all outside to this cement wall and we got lots of glass bottles and and plates, dinner plates, and we started smashing them against the wall and that worked. That really helped people to find what they were actually feeling and also to find common ground with one another. Uh, There was a woman I worked with and her husband was a cop and he'd survived for, I don't know, 40 years on the job. He came home, got sick, and he was dead three or four months later. And I asked her what really helped. And she said only one thing. She said, I had this friend who would call me up every Monday and say to me, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner. I know you'll probably say no, but if you do, I'm going to call you up again next Monday. And she did this for a year. She called this woman every Monday. The woman said she never went to her house for dinner, but that phone call was a lifeline to her. It was really someone not needing her to be any different in her life and staying with her for at least a year in this case for grieving. You know, what happens in, when our relationships break up, you know, people give us advice. They say, you'll find another relationship. It's going to be okay. Well, it doesn't feel okay in that moment. It feels horrible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a really interesting way to get to know your friends on a deeper level is when you're grieving Yeah. and get to see their mechanisms kind of work and some of the people who I didn't fully appreciate in just regular social situations, you know, didn't, they weren't my closest people or the most interesting, but the way they showed up for my grief really changed the way I saw them. Yeah. You know, whether, you know, I, uh, some people, yeah, really surprised me. Where they. Uh, how did they show up? Well, they would text me and then I wouldn't respond, which, you know, in most situations is offensive. Uh-huh. And then they, they text me again as if that had never happened a week later, Uh kind of similar to the phone call. Mm -hmm. Hey, how are you feeling? Yeah. Heartbreak is the probably the deepest grief I've had. uh, And I've lost a lot of people, but just, you know, it's particularly close to these people. I consider them and still sometimes, some days do consider them soulmates. I'm not sure a soulmate has to last forever. Um, But there were people who didn't, need anything from me. And they could they could love me and hold my hand and cuddle me and let me cook breakfast for them and all the things I missed about being in a relationship without needing anything. Just blown away, you know, what? Natural healers. And they weren't necessarily the people who I was closest to. They were just people who had an extraordinary response to someone they knew grieving,
1: really. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely convinced that the only thing we're really asking for from each other is our attention, you know, our loving attention. And it's really the only thing we have to give most of the time (laughs) is our loving attention. And and I think we underestimate the healing power of simple human presence, of just being with somebody, you know, not needing them to be different. My daughter and I like to shop in consignment shops. And she, you know, she looks around for a cool leather jacket or a pair of, you know, sequin shoes. She tries to get some things, tries them on the dressing room and I go walking around looking for other, you know, paisley scarf or something she might like. And we're in this one shop and I see this blouse and it says 9.95 as is. 9.95 as is and I like this. I like this tag that says as is. You know, I I think we should get these tags for ourselves and for each other. I take you as is. I mean, that's a really beautiful thing. I have that on a list. Do you?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a really great thing to do. From 29 to 30 this year that I've decided a few things I want. And one is I want to accept my friends as is. Yeah. As flakes, as, you know, forgetful, sometimes inconsiderate beings, but just as is.
1: I think it's a beautiful gift to give one another, you know, and view of ourselves. I take you as is, you know, with all of your imperfections and perfections, I take you as is. It's a great thing to hold on your mind too, because
0: obviously it's, it's impossible to be perfect at that. Right. Uh-huh. But it really teaches you some things about yourself. My best friend is like this, you know, where you never know if he's going to show up or not. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a, uh, the best friend anyone could ever ask for. I mean, gosh, my soul feels just so deeply indebted to him in terms of the the love and attention he's given me when I couldn't even pick myself up. But uh, man, I, there was a point where I almost felt like I can't be friends with him anymore. And it took me a lot of therapy and the therapist just said, well, why do you keep inviting him to time-sensitive things? You know, why do you, why do you keep asking him to putting this kind of burden on the relationship. Why don't you just tell him what you're doing and that he's welcome. And that's what I do now. And he shows up more. (laughs) Actually funny enough, is I just say, hey, I'm gonna be here from this time to this time. You're welcome to join me. And then I don't expect him to. And then he shows up and wow, am I
1: surprised when he shows up, you know? I mean, one of the, you know, like this in a way, what's really helped me over the years in working with folks who are dying is, First of all, I had to do my homework. I had to know who I am. I had to be willing to look at my own fear, my own grief. Because you know, if I didn't, you know, and, and someone was afraid, and I said, I understand, they would know I was just guessing, and they would sniff out my sentimentality and my insincerity. So in order to be of some service to people, I had to look at my own fear. I have to look at my own grief, and it's not a one-time look, it's a continuous exploration. There was this guy, he, I worked with a lot of characters, and this guy was really grumpy. You know, we had this idea that when people are dying, suddenly they get really kind and wise, but that's not true. <laughs> people just are themselves. And um, every time a volunteer would go into this guy's room, he would scream at them. And so they came down to me and they said, you got to talk to this guy. He's, You know, he's, he's alienating everyone. And I said, not me, I'm too scared to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. <laughs> But I got off the gumption, and, and I went to his room. And as soon as I stepped over the threshold, he started screaming at me. Goddamn people around this place. They're so bloody nice. I can't breathe in this place, he would say to me. And I got scared immediately. He was screaming at the top of his lungs at me. I got scared. And the one thing I've really learned, the one intervention that's useful, is I sit down. Mostly because it's harder to run away when I sit down. So I, I sit down in a chair... And he's still screaming at me at the top of his lungs. And he's saying, I can't breathe in this place. And I realize I'm not breathing so well either in this moment. So I take a deep breath. I settle myself in my belly a little bit. And I say to him, breathe in. Breathe in really deep, you know. He looks at me like I'm out of of my mind. But I said, God, just try it. And he takes in his deep breath. And I said, don't forget to breathe out. He breathes out. And we do this together for a little while. And um, then I noticed that as he's breathing in breathing out, he's not screaming so much. I figure we're making progress. And then I'm feeling my feet on the floor, and I realize they've been cramped up and a little bit restless. And so I settled them onto the floor, and that feels good. So I reach under the blankets on his bed, and I take his foot in my hand, and I just hold it. Now we're breathing in, we're breathing out, and I'm holding his foot. Something shifted. You know, I don't know exactly what's happened. And then holding his foot, I felt all this affection for him. You know, all this, I just felt kindness well up in me for this grumpy guy. And I said, uh, Larry, I said, you know, there's so many people around here that love you. I want you to know that. And he looked at me and he said, who? <laughs> I said, I take a risk, you know, and I said, your uh, Your mother because that's the love we most want, you know? That's the first face of God for us, you know? It's the love we've always wanted in our lives. And I said, your mother, and he said, I hope so. Like, now we're having a whole nother conversation. And the only thing that got us there was my willingness to go turn toward my fear, to sense into it, to feel myself in this body, these feet that were agitated and restless, and to begin to feel some kind of empathy with his situation, let that grow in my heart and mind, and then to reach out from that. There isn't anything more human than that. It's the most human thing to do. And we don't need a degree to do that. We don't need some special bit of training to do that. We just have to be willing to show up as a human being and extend the goodness, the innate goodness of our heart and let it be a reliable guide. Wow you've
0: seen, correct me if I'm wrong, but over a thousand people pass, right? At least. At least. Do you find it odd that people aren't asking you more
1: questions? You mean when they're dying?
0: No, that us in the
1: still healthy and living world. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, people ask me all kinds of things, you know. I, I mean, mostly what I have to offer, it comes from... These folks that I've been talking to you about, you know, regular folks, ordinary people, you know, people who were working in wire hanger factories and, you know, insurance people, sales persons and all kinds of walks of life, you know, there was this father and son I worked with and (laughs) the the son had HIV, had AIDS, and he called up his father to tell him that he was gay and that he had HIV. And his father hung up the phone on him and said, I never want to talk to you again. Now, six months later, when I came into their life, the father had been diagnosed with HIV. He was a hemophiliac and he uh, contracted the virus through a blood transfusion. And so when I met the two of them, they were in twin beds in the same room being cared for by Agnes the son's mother and the father's wife, yeah. You know, I think the dad worked in a iron or steel working plant of some kind, aluminum factory, that's what it was. And here they were, you know, in the very same situation. The thing, the very things that were separating them before became the thing that brought them together. It wasn't like everything worked out for them and it was all perfect, but somehow they found their common ground with each other and they found it through their dying process. There was a guy at the hospice I took care of and he was Vietnamese and he was really scared of ghosts. And his roommate, Isaiah, was an African-American man and he was really comforted by nightly visits from his dead mother. Yeah, they were, roommates, yeah. Like regular folks finding their way. Some people who were clear as bells going to their death and, and other people couldn't remember their names. There was one guy, Alex, that I worked with. He climbed out into his fire escape at night because he had dementia and he froze to death. It doesn't always go beautifully. Dying doesn't always have a red ribbon tied on it. I'm not expecting that. What, has, what I've learned from it is just how diverse we are as human beings. And how much, when it comes down to it, what really matters to us the most is, am I loved? You know, the two questions that people ask when they're dying are not, you know, am I going to heaven? And, you know, should I have gotten the second Mercedes? It's more like, am I loved? And did I love well? And if those two questions are really important to us at the end of our life, well, then they're important to us now. And... So for me, they form the basis for my friendships with people, for my relationships with my family, for my relationship with myself. Can I live in a way that's characterized by more love? And not some, you know, new age, sappy, sentimental. I mean, the real thing.
0: What are the ways you try to live that in your, in your life that feel like, man, this is going to pay dividends when I'm on my bed? <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think so much far ahead about that, you know? It's like, it's like what you were saying about prayer. You do it because it makes you feel good now, you know? Now, if you're feeling good now, chances are, you'll probably be a lot kinder to the people around you than if you're feeling miserable. So if I do my best to lead a life that has integrity, that tries my best to, you know, have it be infused with love, That's good for me, Um, right here, right now. And also, it sort of sets a habit in motion. I mean, the habits of our life, they're really strong, and they have a momentum that carries through right to the time of our dying. So the question that emerges, of course, is, you know, what habits do I want to create? How do I want to live this life? Not just so I'll have a good death, but so death will be a culmination of a whole happy, real Hopefully, wise and compassionate life. I, I'm amazed that human beings are walking around, Sam. I'm amazed that you and I are walking around, given our histories. You know that 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 given the pain of our lives, we can be sitting here having this conversation as a service to other people and each other, of course.
0: Yeah, I can't believe I got out of bed this morning. I, I went to. Stinson beach last night. I was so unwell. just one of those days. I don't know if it's cause the, I don't know, just really messed up and I was just staring at the water I just wanted to walk into it, mm-hmm. you know, like really. And yeah, I'm amazed too. And it's, it's funny how easy it is to forget that. I remember it now because last night, you know, waking up and going, wow, I feel slightly better than I did yesterday. What a miracle. Yeah. You know, <laughs> patience is one of the, you know, for anyone out there really struggling with their current mind, you know, sometimes patience really goes a long way. I agree. I think and, happiness and sadness are both temporary. Yeah. Once once you learn to, you know, enjoy the happiness as temporary and kind of, you know, take the sadness as it comes as temporary, Gets easier.
1: So, what shifted last night?
0: <sighs> well, I mean, I listened to other to to pretty sad music. Mm-hmm. For me, it's comforting to hear other people, just to know I'm not alone. Yeah, I cried a lot, and I wasn't sure what I was crying for. You know, I had all these feelings that, kind of, the regular suspects of of my depression and I'm a failure That I'm not doing enough that I should be further by now that I'm going to end up old and not have achieved the things I want to achieve, which is also, you know, funny enough is that when I'm feeling well, I'm not acting like that. That only those thoughts come when I'm sad, when I'm happy, I can squander time, like no, (laughs) no (laughs) no problem. But when I'm sad, every moment feels like I've, Wasted it And what happened I mean The ocean happened Yeah The trees happened Being pretty far away From other people happened Uh That helps Yeah Some You know Sometimes Sometimes I need people Sometimes I need No people Some friends Very intuitive friends Texted me And I didn't respond But I saw the text Uh I woke up this morning And I think what Had mostly happened Is I hadn't Taken last night's moment too seriously.
1: Yeah, actually that's really helpful, I think. I mean, right. where are those thoughts from last night, you know? Right. Did you leave them at Stinson Beach, just forget to pick them up? I mean, they came and they went. And it's not, I don't mean that we should dismiss them. Yeah. I just mean that sometimes we have to understand that these, this is the human condition moving through us. That we didn't invent it. We didn't invent grasping or attachment or delusion. That was not our creation. It's been here since humankind has been around. And so when I understand that, then I understand that's what's going on. The currents of the human condition are moving through me in this particular time. And sometimes they get the best of me. And then I need something else. I need to know something that's larger than myself that also includes me. Like in your case... There was something about the stillness of being next to the ocean and maybe the vastness of being next to the ocean that was a comfort. For me, when I'm in pain, it helps me to know that other people are in pain. Me too. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, my pain's not so bad because everybody's, you know, this, this, you know, when we were kids, they used to talk about kids in other countries that were starving. And so we shouldn't feel so bad about our pain. That doesn't help. I I was in... um, Italy a few years ago, and I had a really bad problem with my back. It was killer pain I was having. And I'd flown all the way over in this airplane, and these three very nice women who were friends met me and wanted to take me out and show me Florence and take me out for a really nice dinner, and I was in gut-wrenching pain, really hard pain. And I got back to my little hotel room in my little pension, and I was jet-lagged, and I was in unbelievable pain, and I just wanted the pain to stop. You know, it was physical pain, but also lots of emotional turmoil around it. And and I laid in bed and I thought, wow, there must be a lot of people awake in the middle of the night tonight who are in pain. And it wasn't to diminish mine; it was to help myself connect with. And it didn't depress me more; it did just the opposite. It actually helped me to feel connected with a whole lot of people that were suffering. And so my isolation and my loneliness diminished in some way and my empathy and my compassion for those other people began to emerge and sure enough my compassion for myself also started to emerge sometimes for some of us it's hard to feel compassion for ourselves first and so we you know can sort of prime the pump if you will by letting ourselves feel compassion and um, empathy for other people's suffering Um, for me that's the heart of this work that I've been doing all my life is to recognize that the ground of compassion is not just, it's not just some Hallmark card. It it comes out of the wisdom that while each of us are unique and absolutely different, um, you know, differentiated, we're not fundamentally separate. No more than the the waves that were coming in at Stinson Beach last night are separate from the ocean that you were looking at. They come up, they get formed, they're beautiful, and then they crash on the shore and they get sucked back out to the sea. And when I know that's true, not just about waves, but about each human being, um, it changes the way I function in the world. And compassion doesn't become this big heroic gesture. In fact, what it becomes is the most natural outflowing of what it is to be human. What are the, I've seen a few people reach
0: the end unfulfilled, deeply disappointed, I guess, with their life. And uh, it was horrifying to watch. It was really a wake up call in a lot of ways but you've had the honor, I guess I would call it, to see thousands of people pass, you know, good and bad, no judgment to either one, but let's assume that we all want to uh, have as much grace as possible (laughs) in the end. What are the big regrets that you've seen come up? The big ones where they were red flags to you, in terms of ways you wanted to live, you wanted to make sure, wow, I hope I can avoid that one, that looks pretty painful.
1: Yeah, I mean, this whole book's written on this, what are people's great regrets at the time of their dying? And you know, there are people who turn toward the wall and withdrawal and depression and they never come back again. And there are people who blossom and find the kindness in their life that they've always been looking for. Both of them have been my teachers. I tend not to focus. You know, when this question comes up about what are the great regrets, I always feel like people are trying to then avoid them. Like, give me the Mm list of regrets. That's what I want. I don't have to go through them. I want an actionable (laughs) list, Frank. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm more interested, actually, in what are the kinds of transformations that people make at the end of their life, and how do I aim toward that, you know? All right, yeah, I'm in. Okay, so... So how do people discover unbelievable love that they didn't know they had? There was a guy I worked with, Sam. He was, um, he came to us out of prison. He stabbed his sister 17 times and killed her. And he came out to our hospice on a compassionate release. Now, when he came to the hospice dying of cancer, we didn't treat him like a prisoner. We just treated him like another human being. And he was pretty tough. He wouldn't let anybody help him. We were sitting around one, one afternoon, and uh, after he'd been with us for about a month, and he said, Frank, I let the girls help me today. <laughs> and I said, the girls with the nurses. And I said, well, yeah, what'd you let them do Gene? He said, I let them help me get in the shower. Now, Gene, this meant he got in the shower with all his clothes on, because <laughs> he wasn't going to let anybody see him naked, you know? And um, that was a big breakthrough for him. I worked at Zen Hospice for about 20 years. And uh, the only one who ever threw me a surprise party was this guy. He saved up his SSI check and he threw me a party. He he wanted to hire a stripper to jump out of a cake. He thought that would be a really good birthday party for me but the (laughs) nurses told him that a regular cake would be just fine, you know. So he planned this whole party. And I walked into the room and I was so touched, so moved by his generosity. He was a really tough guy. And if he had shown that kind of kindness, that sort of vulnerability, when he was in the juvie halls that he grew up in or the prisons that he later lived in, it wouldn't have been safe for him. He might've been killed.
0: Oh, absolutely. yeah.
1: But in this situation, a whole other part of him could come forward that he was never able to show before, his kindness, his gentleness, his vulnerability. So I always feel like there's a whole human being there, even if they're in a distressing disguise. And even if they've lived in a habit of their life, which is, you know, taking them in a really different direction, there's a whole human being there. And I try to my best to um sort of hold a mirror up to that. And then People can do what they want to do, but frequently they blossom. Uh, Frequently they transform Um, because intrinsically people, well, they want to be happy. They want to be loved. They want to live with love. That's what I've seen time and again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pause here for a second. Um, I'm wondering in the conversation if there's something else that you really wanted to ask that you're not asking.
0: Well, there's one thing I thought about asking that I had conveniently forgotten.
1: I'm okay with including all of it. You know, the parts that we can't figure out, The depression, the sadness, and also the joy that is part of being a human being. But I get the sense that there's something else you want to ask about that we haven't gotten to yet. I'm not sure if it's a question
0: as much as it's just something to say out loud. I am like... I still carry so much shame... About my grandma's passing, huh. and I've done a lot of work around it. And it's not that I need a solution for you; it's just that I just want to tell you. Yeah. For I don't know if that makes sense. Tell me about it. My my grandma, who who was not my blood relative, she was my blood grandma's best friend. And since my uh, blood grandma passed when I was young, she really stepped up. She loved me so much and gave me so much. And she, she passed during the height of my addiction, not height, but during full blown addiction. And the night she died, my mom called me and I was high on cocaine. And I was like an hour away. I was with other people high on cocaine and I, my mom said, Gertrude's dying tonight. She's calling for you. You should be here. And I said, I, I couldn't make it. And the truth was that I could have made it if I had been willing to kind of like ruin the night for the other two people and turn back. It was even my car. I really had the power, you know, turn back and show up completely high on cocaine for this woman who had given me everything and I didn't do it. Yeah. You know. And I have all kinds of thoughts about it, you know, but I really do have so much. It's like one of those things, it's, it's one of those frustrating, permanent things where you don't get to clean up your mess. You know? You have to accept it. It's very hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then there's there's several real consequences I've gotten like that. You know, there's the hardest ones where you made a decision and you're with the result of that decision, and there's no apology letter or or anything. And you know, my grandma Gertrude, um, her caretaker has talked to me about it years later. She said, oh, Sam, she loved you so much. That one night would not have been a huge deal to her, mm. you know, considering the lifetime you guys had together. But it's still, you know, death is, is so final mm-hmm. here, at least in this re- existence. And
1: I Yeah, that's the thing about, the dying process that gets our attention because there's no do-overs. You know, it's not like when you are a kid and you could say, let's do it over again, you know? And it's a slice. That night is a slice of your life with her. And it sounds like it was a really painful night
0: for you. Yeah, and it's a painful experience to relive over. Sure,
1: sure. And as Gertrude caregiver said to you, you know, oh, it sounds like she really loved you a lot. So I don't want to take away that pain because there's some real value to that pain. And we're always trying to take away people's suffering. And I think we do it too quickly sometimes. I think there's value in our suffering. And that one of of its values is that it helps us to have empathy for other people in a similar situation. And that's, I've found to be um, really useful in my life. But then the other piece is the way in which we can condemn ourselves to some kind of hell realm for the rest of our lives because of a particular set of actions on a, on one evening. How do you know that Gertrude loved you? Me? Yeah.
0: The time she gave. The time she gave me. The time and the love and the uh-huh. undivided attention. I and mean, granted, cell phones weren't huge at this time, but. Uh-huh. You know just undivided attention and floor time and love. And she was an aware woman. Uh She was in Nazi Germany. She was a war bride. Uh. And so she was aware. She was aware of how precious food was, you know, she would Mm -hmm. save everything Mm -hmm. in the freezer. She was aware of how precious life was, of how precious time was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's one thing for, for someone to, to quote unquote, waste time, but it's another for somebody that knows the value of time to give it. And she knew the value of time and she really gave it, you know, she didn't owe me anything. I wasn't a blood relative. She,
1: you know, so one of the ways she expressed it was that she gave you her time, which was a valuable part of her life, right? How else did she express it? There's, uh, there's a million
0: different ways. She, uh, she would cook for us. You know, it was very, it was the closest thing we had to like a normal family dinner <laughs> uh-huh. was at her house. Cause it was just me and my mom at home. We didn't really have like, we didn't sit around a table and her wisdom. And, you know, I, I was young. She passed when I was a teenager. And so I don't remember everything, especially once you had the, the drugs mm-hmm. to the equation.
1: Yeah, but you remember being nurtured.
0: I do. Yeah, there's some things, you know, you forget specifics, but you don't forget the the truth. Just the feeling of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You you know what it's like when you're in the company of someone who loves you. Yeah. Uh
0: It just feels like for all of that, just to not be there to support her during the last moment just feels really lousy. And it is.
1: Yeah, it does feel lousy. And, you know, um, we have a story that the last moment is the most important moment. And I think it's a story. Uh, I don't know that it's any more important than any other moment, the last moment our last breath. Um, I think it's a cumulative moment. I think all of our lives pour into that moment in a way. And so... What, what I mean by that is that everything that we've had available to us supports us in that moment. And I would imagine that her relationship with you, the love that you shared with each other, it wasn't just one way, it doesn't sound like, that that was there for her, even if your physical presence wasn't. So it's not my idea to try and cheer you up or take away this experience. I think the experience is one that will... that engenders empathy and also a whole life shows up in our dying (laughs) and everything that was in that life shows up in our dying. And that includes all the love that you two shared with each other. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Isn't it amazing then we, When we most need our tenderness, when we most need our mercy, we club ourselves with self-judgment in one kind or another.
0: Yeah, that's, like, that's a huge part of my growth. Yeah, well. Is picking up smaller switches, smaller and smaller clubs. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good way to say it. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah we, and we start to recognize those voices. And, and the, the, for me, the real thing that's really helped is to really be able to discern when those voices are wisdom and when those voices are just criticism. And for me, um, one of the ways that I discern that is the tone of voice that the message is delivered with. Uh, is it mean, is it adversarial? I mean, I've been with some remarkable spiritual teachers over the years, remarkable teachers. And not one of them have ever transmitted their wisdom to me with meanness. (laughs) So even when truth comes from the self-critic, you know, from this judge, we can take the truth, but we don't need the delivery system. We don't need the voice of harshness. It doesn't help us. And so I've really learned to defend against that critic, you know, to say, back off. You know, or to, or to say, you know, tell the emotional truth. When you talk to me that way, it really hurts me. Don't talk to me that way. And I really, I think of the critic as a corrosive agent in my life that I don't need anymore. You know, my parents taught me to look both ways before I cross the street. But I don't have to beat myself up if I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I can use my wisdom as a, a replacement for that self-critic. So, yeah. So as we grow, I think uh, we mature into our wisdom and into our capacity to discern. And one of the things we discern is when a message is coming to us um, in a way that belittles us, and shames us, as opposed to lifting us up. Yeah.
0: While you're mentioning messages, you took the time and sat through the process of writing a book. So you have a message that you wanted to, to spread out beyond what you could, who you could contact just person to person. Yeah. What are the big things you wanted people to learn through reading your book?
1: Well, you know, Sam, the first thing you should know is that I did not want to write a book. I actually, I I avoided it like the plague. Um, my, my, my dear bride persuaded me that I should do it. And, uh, and she did it by hiring an editor to help me write a book proposal. And we had a good experience in writing that book proposal. May Fox, a wonderful editor. And um, the book was re- well received. And the idea was that she was going to ghostwrite it. And I was just going to tell stories. But then uh, May May, very, in a wonderful way, got pregnant. And so she <laughs> couldn't write the book. So I had to do it. Um, And it was hard. Uh, I don't think of myself as a writer. And yet, I felt like I had this support all the time. You know, a few years ago, I I had a heart attack. And um, it was humbling. I used to think I knew a lot about dying until I had a heart attack. And then I realized I didn't know shit about it. But during that time that I was healing, after this triple bypass surgery I had, uh, every night I had dreams, every night for about six months. And in those dreams, people that I had taken care of in a in, over the course of my time in the hospice work came to me in the dreams. And sometimes they just sat beside me and didn't say anything. Other times they'd give me some piece of advice, you know. Other times they'd just say thank you in some way. And um, they were a great um, salve to me in my healing. And when I was writing the book... I felt like I was sitting down with them. I felt like um, I would sometimes just sit at my desk and have conversations with them. And they would often show me, um, by helping me remember a story, what I should write about. If, if there's a message, and, and I hope, that there's several in the book, but I, if there's a message, it is that I saw a whole lot of people come to their dying in fear and regret. And I thought we could do something about that. And so I wrote the book to show another possibility. And we wrote down these five invitations as a way to um, give people something, a kind of guideline. You know, they were, they were the tools that we used, they were the guidelines we used to take care of folks who were dying. And then we found out that they had a relevance for all of us in leading a life of more integrity, um, more imagination, more creativity, Um, living a life with more love and wisdom. So, yeah, that's how we got started. And so the the five invitations are just that. They are the messages about the folks who are dying shared with me about how to live a life fully, completely, no part left out.
0: And what are the 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 five invitations?
1: Well, the first one is uh, don't wait. I mean, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive. I miss this one. Second one is welcome everything, push away nothing. Now that sounds really good. It'd make a good bumper sticker. But how do you do that? (laughs) Welcome everything, push away nothing. It doesn't mean it means you don't have to like what's arising. You don't have to agree with it. You just have to be willing to meet it. It's at your front door, you have to be willing to meet it. Baldwin, James Baldwin, the great African-American writer said, you know, there's a lot of things in this life we must face that we cannot change, but nothing can be changed until we're willing to face it. That's welcome everything, push away nothing. The third uh, invitation is uh, bring your whole self to the experience. I mean, we all like to look good, right? We like to imagine we're intelligent and compassionate and capable. None of us like to be known for our fear or that we're more of a mess than we like to let on. But to bring your whole self to the experience means to bring it all. When I'm working with someone who's dying, you know, my fear serves, my... Grief serves, they serve as a meeting place with the person that I'm working with. The fourth one is uh, find a place of rest in the middle of things. (laughs) We're always thinking we're going to rest later, like when we go on vacation or when our list gets checked off, our inbox is empty, but my inbox is never empty. So if I wait for that, I'm in trouble. So I have to find a way of resting right in the middle of whatever it is I'm doing, and I do that by bringing my attention fully and completely to whatever it is I'm doing. The fifth one is um, uh, cultivate don't know mind. I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in the list. You know, yeah. people might speak talk otherwise. Yeah. Frank's really turned on us here. <laughs> so, cultivate don't know mind is is not an encouragement to be ignorant. You know, ignorance isn't not knowing. Ignorance is I know something, but it's the wrong thing, and then I insist on it. You know, there's a lot of that going on in the world right now. Don't know mind is is what we're doing here. You know, it's curious and open ended and full of wonder, and uh, and so I think that's a good quality of mind to walk through life with. So anyway, that's the five. You know, don't wait. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Don't wait. Cultivate don't know mind. Pick one, anyone you like, you know, and live it for a while. My 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 own experience is you you know, you pull on one and you get the others. Oh, I
0: love that. Yeah, because right, of course, you want to start the diet, the exercise plan, everything all at once. I love that. Yeah, pick one. Pick one. Pick one. Pick one. Live it for a day. You know, I'm glad you wrote that, Frank. I'm glad you wrote that book. Yeah, thanks. I'm about thanks. halfway through, and I wouldn't have known that you weren't a writer. I think it's it's a really big gift and I'm glad you took the time to do it. Yeah, thanks.
1: I appreciate it. So
0: this is the way I like to end the program. You've been more than generous with your time, especially if you consider yesterday's fiasco. The mics broke. And so we had to, I showed up, set everything up and then nothing worked. <laughs> so we had to do a redo. Luckily with podcast recordings, generally you do have a chance for a redo. I like to end the program with this kind of question. If I handed you my phone right now, said, the phone's for you, Frank. There's someone on the other end who's completely lost. Completely and totally lost. They're wonderful and they're talented. People love them. They just, they don't quite know it yet, but they have no idea what to do. And they're really receptive to just some outside opinion. They need it actually. What is the message you would want to tell them of just where to start of how to human how to generally live an okay, if not wonderful,
1: existence? (laughs) Well, Sam, my way would be to listen more than tell. You know, when I'm with folks who are dying, I, I walk in the room, I sit down. I listen more than I talk, and I touch when it seems appropriate that's what I learned about being with folks who were dying. And if I were across from this person, they were handing my phone, I, I'd set the phone down and I'd say, so tell me, so tell me. And then I'd listen, you know, and I'd do my best to be a mirror uh, for their own innate wisdom and compassion. I really trust human beings. There's a great psychologist, Carl Rogers, who's around, back in the day and he said something really beautiful. He said, you know, before every session I remind myself that I'm human and that the person I'm about to meet is human and that they don't have to be ashamed of themselves in my company. Um, that whatever they have felt, whatever they have known, they don't have to hide it from me. And The fact that we're human is enough. So I don't know if I'd say that out loud or I'd just try and reflect that. But in a way, that's what I'd most want to say is it's enough to be human. It's enough to be human, you know? And we don't have to get it right all the time. It's just enough to be human.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Frank. Glad to be with you, Sam. And that's it. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Big thank you to Frank. I really enjoyed this conversation. And a special thank you right now to our patrons who continue to make this possible or even seem feasible. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash hello human. The link is in the description of the podcast. This is the How to Human podcast. It's a production of hellohumans.co, which is our website, our Instagram, our Facebook. And this This program is brought to you by me and our producer, Meg Schmidt. Until next. Oh, and a big special thank you to Jamie Morris, who helped clean up the audio because we recorded this with inferior microphones and it needed a lot of help. So, Jamie, thank you. And all right. (laughs) Until next time, everybody.
1: Have a good day.